Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Andrew Egger this week, my fellow staff writer at the Dispatch. And we are talking to Dr. Tom Frieden. He is the former CDC director and now the president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, a global health initiative aimed at preventing cardiovascular disease and epidemics here in the U.S. and around the world. But the reason we want to talk to Dr. Frieden specifically this week, well, you're about to find out. Let's dive right in. Doctor, one of the main reasons that we wanted to have you here today is we have a lot of listeners who have been asking us what they can do to persuade friends and relatives who are hesitant to take any of these COVID-19 vaccines that are quickly becoming more and more available to more people. And based on a recent focus group, the answer to what you can do to persuade your friends and relatives was you. So we have polls that show that nearly half of people who voted for President Trump in November said that if they're offered a vaccine, they're not interested in getting it. Frank Luntz then did a focus group with 20 vaccine-hesitant Trump voters. First, I want to talk to you about why we think these people are hesitant to get the vaccine, and then I want to talk to you about why you were the most persuasive voice in that room to them. Do you understand why people are wary to get the vaccine? There are lots of different reasons people are hesitant to get vaccinated. And I think you have to separate people who are just adamantly opposed and nothing you can say will change their mind. That's a small group, less than 5%, from others who have a wide range of concerns. And addressing those concerns is really important. And frankly, effective communication starts with listening, hearing what people's concerns are. And the focus group was fascinating because this is a group of intelligent people who care about their health, and were adamantly opposed to getting vaccinated. They believed that the virus, the vaccine, and the COVID program have been politicized and weaponized, and they didn't want to hear from politicians. They didn't even want to hear from former President Trump, of whom they continue to think very highly. They're thinking about whether or not to put a foreign substance in their body. And they had a lot of questions. They were so frustrated that they weren't being respected, they weren't being listened to, and those questions weren't being addressed. Probably the most common question they had was, how can you be certain there aren't bad long-term consequences from this vaccine? And the honest answer is, we can't be certain. I understand your concern, but I'll share with you some information that may be helpful to you. I'm not going to tell you to get vaccinated. I'm going to share information with you. I noticed that that's how you approached it. You said, I'm not here to convince you. I'm here to answer questions. I'm here to explain things. Here are five things I want to share with you. I was wondering as I read that whether you had studied sort of the psychology of persuasion, because certainly the what we know from studies having nothing to do with coronavirus is the worst way to persuade someone is to argue with them. Well, it's fundamental to public health. So I spent over a decade working on tuberculosis control. In tuberculosis control, we have to convince patients who feel perfectly fine to take medicines for many months or they will get very sick. 
We have to gain the trust of patients so they'll tell us who their contacts are. And we have to address the problems that they have. So one of the first fundamental concepts of that kind of relationship is that the patient needs to be the VIP of the program, that you have to listen. It's also so important to focus on convenience because at the end of the day, someone may be vaccine hesitant, but if they're offered a vaccine as they're walking into the shopping center or if they're online for something, they may well take it. So convenience may overcome um, reluctance frequently. That seems to have been the case with the flu shot. Right. And one of the key lessons from flu and other immunization programs is that it's so important to have multiple platforms. That includes pharmacies, community vaccination sites, pop-up vaccination sites, and really importantly, doctor's offices. Within the coming months, we should be able to get a COVID vaccine in the office of any doctor who wants to give that vaccine. One of the interesting things um, about what you say about this, this concern about long-term effects, reluctance uh, because of long-term effects, I think has has a lot to do with um, the fact that the disease is new, um, the vaccines are obviously brand new, and and there's been so much uh, news coverage of sort of the the, the vaccine development. People have been following along with it every step of the way. And so there's there's really like a sense that, wow, this is like a brand new thing. Uh, But at the same time, you know, all of the vaccines that we have that have been around for a while, they were new at one point. All, all these treatments were new at one point. Can you just talk a little bit about what actually uh, goes into um, the, the decision-making process uh, uh, about testing these things in terms of um, you know, why we believe uh, with, a, with a degree of confidence that, that we're not going to start seeing uh, uh, long-term problems? Well, one thing that was really important to explain is that although it's remarkable that this vaccine has been approved in a year. It's the result of more than a decade of scientific research. It's not as if it was invented from whole cloth within a a year. It required more than a decade of very intensive research. In addition, that the rapid approval wasn't from cutting corners. It was from cutting red tape. It was from investing a lot of money and focusing on what worked and trying a lot of different ways to produce a vaccine. And then there were some that got over the finish line first. The trials of the vaccinations were large. More than 70,000 patients participated in them. That's larger than most vaccine trials. And there were no serious negative effects. It's also important to think about risks and benefits. If you get infected with COVID, you're going to have billions and billions of the virus particles all over your body, and they may cause harm for weeks, months, or even years. We don't yet know how frequent and severe long COVID will be. In contrast, with a vaccine, it teaches your immune system how to respond, and then it's gone. I made the analogy to a message sent to every one of your immune cells, which shows it a most wanted picture of what COVID looks like and a set of instructions on how to kill it. And then like a Snapchat message, it disappears. So let's get to the, the, the big reveal here. What were the five fast facts that you shared with this group that they found so persuasive? First, the risks of infection are vastly higher than the risks of vaccination. Even healthy young people can get severely ill, die, or suffer long-term harm 
from COVID infection. Second, COVID vaccines don't stay in your body. They prime your immune system, teach it to fight the virus, and then disappear. Third, nearly every doctor who's been offered a COVID vaccine gets it as soon as they can. Fourth, the more of us who get vaccinated, the faster we can get our jobs back and our economy back. And fifth, vaccinations can save the lives of at least 100,000 Americans in the coming months who would otherwise be killed by the COVID virus. It's interesting to me that, um, of course, a couple of those are just um, you know pure medical factual statements about sort of what the vaccine is and does. Um, but a couple of those are, are, are more about putting somebody in the correct, I guess, frame of mind to think about this from a, from a public health perspective, um, uh, appeals to the specific kind of authority that, that uh, um, we, we've seen people tend to trust. I mean, the fact that doctors get it. Um, how, how, how important is it? Um, and, and how do you, I guess, do you go about um, taking a person who's making a personal medical decision and trying to get them to think about that in terms of public health. Different messages and different messengers will work best for different people. Um, It was really clear they wanted to hear from doctors. And uh, there were other doctors on the call, uh, physician members of Congress, and they had some very important points that I think made an impact on the group. Uh, The fact that doctors are taking this vaccine, that really made an impact. And and it's true, uh, you know, doctors uh, want this vaccine and get it. Uh, what's really interesting is that the approach may be slightly different for different people. And if you if you read the room, it was a Zoom room with uh, all, all the faces. Some of those messages really resonated, and I, I watched the tape afterwards. Some of them, some of those five really resonated with some of them and others with others of them. So different strokes for different folks, different messages will work for uh, different audiences. Can we run through some COVID myths versus facts? I have, um, it's in my friend group, one of my uh, friends tried to hire someone and uh, the woman in question said she would not take the vaccine because she believed it affected women's fertility, would make women infertile if they took it. And it was a real, you know, heartfelt struggle. My friend then couldn't hire this person, uh, she decided. Because Because she needed a vaccine to get a job, you mean? Yeah, because she felt like she wanted her employees to be willing to take the vaccine. She couldn't convince this person to take the vaccine. Um, I'm going to step back there. Yeah. Um, Other than nursing homes, I don't know that any employer should mandate vaccination for their staff. Interesting. Say more. If their staff are not providing a risk to others, it's uh, not necessarily, it's legally acceptable. Their, their employers can do that. Employers can, for example, decide not to hire smokers. Uh, that's employer's prerogative. But I think the issue of forced vaccination or uh, uh, required vaccination is a really complicated one, and it can backfire. Uh, I'll give you an example from a different vaccine. The HPV vaccine, human papilloma vaccine, is very effective. And some countries that have used it widely are really seeing massive decreases in types of cancers among both women and men. Um, Early on, too early on, the state of Texas took a step to mandate HPV vaccination. 
And perhaps they did that because the company was pushing for it. I don't know why, but it backfired and it really set the cause of HPV vaccination back a long way. And this group reacted very strongly when I said at a different point of the conversation, no one's going to force you to get a vaccine. Oh, yes, they will, they said. And so they were really suspicious about that. And as I've thought about it, the one group that I think there may be an ethical justification for requiring vaccinations of are nursing home employees. Because even if the residents of nursing homes get vaccinated, we don't know how complete that protection will be, particularly in frail older people. Um, I'm, I've had a longstanding uh, position on this. I think that flu vaccination sh should be required of nursing home workers. Uh, there is good evidence that if, if your relative is staying in a nursing home where the staff are vaccinated, they are much less likely to die in flu season. And, and that's just not acceptable. Uh, so that's the one situation where I would say an employer has an ethical uh, right and maybe even duty to require vaccination of their employees, with, of course, exceptions for people who have medical contra true medical contraindications. And you can have a larger discussion on the religious contraindications. It turns out there really aren't religions that uh, have a longstanding opposition to vaccination. But the, uh, in terms of the question about uh, pregnancy, I think what, what often happens is that there's some kernel uh, of uh, not truth, but uh, trigger to this kind of a rumor. And I think what happened early on is that there's limited data, there has, was, not anymore, but there was limited data about use of these vaccines in pregnant women. And the reason for that is that companies are very reluctant in their trials to include pregnant women. And so early on, there was some debate about should pregnant women get these vaccines or not? And that's a, a fairly complicated debate because uh, in health, we are really conservative about what pregnant women receive because we're worried that there may be some impact on uh, the fetus. And uh, the principles there are to think about the risks and the benefits. For example, does the woman have a lot of exposure to COVID? Is she working in a place where she might get infected? Does she have an underlying condition like diabetes that might increase her risk of severe disease if she gets COVID? Uh, and what's her sense about it? I, I wouldn't, you know, strongly you know, encourage a woman to get vaccinated because there's not a lot of data that the COVID illness is going to make a big impact on the pregnancy, unlike some other infections where uh, infection can be devastating in pregnancy. And you really want to make sure that pregnant women get protected. And the basic principle here is that the health of the woman is of fundamental importance and also the autonomy of the woman to make that decision. So while that complicated discussion was going on, the internet blew up with, you know, there's a problem, pregnancy and vaccine. There's no evidence that this vaccine will interfere with any future pregnancy. In fact, uh, the odds that you'll have a problem with a future pregnancy are vastly lower from vaccination than from the infection itself because the infection is uncontrolled. It can have many different impacts that we don't have any idea of. Now, we have no evidence that it's going to interfere with reproduction in any way, but uh, 
if there is any type of problem, it's got to be vastly lower than the problem from a vaccine. Can I follow up specifically on that that question you were talking about, um, uh, about questions of uh, compulsion or incentive and, and the way that people react um, sort of strongly against that? Uh, it seems that there's two um, kind of competing uh, uh, goals here, which is one that we want people, uh, we want to encourage people to get the vaccine. We want people to think that if they get the vaccine, uh, they will, you know, that, that that will sort of in some ways unlock uh, their path back toward kind of normal life. And then at the same time, we don't want to um, do this thing where we are having governments uh, or, or businesses, um, you know, creating kind of like a two-tiered society between people who are vaccinated and who are not in terms of the things they are and aren't allowed to do. What's the best way uh, for for the government and what's the best way for, uh, you know, private businesses to uh, uh, accommodate these two concerns? I think you can have positive and negative incentives. So time off for vaccination, time off a day or two after if people have fever or aren't feeling well. Uh, some facilities are using some incentives for vaccination. Then there are disincentives. So it might be that some workers would be required to continue having nasal tests to see if they have the infection, uh, but they can get out of those tests if they get vaccinated. There's also appealing to people's solidarity that uh, if we can get the vaccination rate up, we're going to have uh, better outcomes as individuals, as families, as companies, as communities. I think also there is an impending moral problem, which is that globally, lots of people will have gotten vaccinated and will be able to travel safely and do more things. And lots of people will be months, if not years away from having access to vaccines. And that's a terrible problem. And I think the only solution to that problem is to increase vaccine manufacturing. We can't slice a small pie better. Uh, to make a big difference, we can have a bigger pie. We can have more vaccines quickly so that more people can get vaccinated globally. Because I think you will see increasingly vaccine certificates that enable people to do things that unvaccinated people can't do. You're already seeing that in a few countries. Back to a few myths that I want you to weigh in on. At the beginning of this pandemic, there was a lot of discussion over whether some countries were going to pursue the concept of herd immunity, let everyone get infected, and then it'll wear itself out. And that now with the vaccine, there's an argument that we need enough people vaccinated to reach herd immunity. So here's the next myth. If I've already had COVID-19, I don't need a vaccine. Well, that's not completely wrong. And I would say if you've got if you've had documented COVID and you want to wait a few months, three months or so, especially when there aren't enough vaccines for everyone, that's okay. However, again, if you're often exposed or you've got an underlying condition that would make you more likely to get sick, if you get it again, then get a vaccine. Uh, there are some people who would prefer to get the J&J vaccine if that's available, if they've been infected before, because there's some evidence that People who've been infected before get a really robust reaction uh, to uh, the vaccine. Um, but it's certainly true that prior infection is pretty protective. And that's probably one reason that the vaccines are so effective. If our body makes a pretty good reaction 
to a regular infection. Uh, the mRNA technology especially seems to help the body make a great reaction, more targeted reaction to uh, that particular uh, antigen. Now, there again are people who might prefer a J&J vaccine, which is a single dose if they've been ill with COVID and waiting a few months, three months after, especially until there's enough vaccine for everyone is not unreasonable. But that's for people who have documented COVID infection. Not, I was sick and I think it was COVID. Andrew, you had a question about variants. Oh, yeah, I, I do. But actually, I I, uh, I did want to ask also, based on you you mentioning the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine just now, um, the, the public health advice that we've all heard um, for, you know, since the vaccination program started is go with the vaccine that's available to you, right? Um, because it's been uh, largely a supply side problem. But, but you can see a situation in which uh, as we have less and less supply issues, there might be, as you indicate, more consumer choice. Um, and, and, and you mentioned one reason why a person might opt to go for Johnson & Johnson over uh, Pfizer or, or Moderna. Um, are there other uh, uh, sorts of factors like that that may come into effect more and more as we, as we move forward? Is, is consumer choice on this sort of thing going to become uh, more of an issue? And, and are we going to at any point see different public health messaging than just get the one you can? I think it'll more be a question of logistics and convenience. So I'd like to see vaccinations outside shopping centers, but I would use a single dose vaccine for that because it may be hard to find someone for their second dose. I'd like to see vaccines in every doctor's office and the uh, vectored vaccines like J's are likely to be more practical for that because of their storage requirements. Uh, There are some people who really hate uh, needles and for them, a single dose may have a big benefit compared to uh, two doses. So I think really uh, that old Chinese saying, black cat or white cat doesn't matter as long as cat catches mice. I mean, whatever vaccine, as long as you get vaccinated. All right, next myth. The vaccine changes your DNA. Yeah, this is a big one. So the because it's got RNA in the title, in the name, some people think it's going to somehow become part of you and turn you into a, uh, a Frankenstein of sorts. And it really, this um, may be a branding problem for the mRNA technologies, but it really is like an email message. That The M stands for messenger. Uh, it is a messenger that sends a code to your body so that your body begins making a protein. Uh, The only thing it changes is whether your body will recognize COVID and respond to it the next time you see it. All right, last myth, and it's sort of a reverse myth. Now that we have a COVID vaccine, why don't we have a vaccine for the common cold or any number of other things I would like not to get again? Well, I thought you were going to ask something else. So I'm going to address that myth next. No, no, I I, you, you say, have a better question. Good, let's go with that. Uh, <laughs> now that we have a vaccine, why do we have to wear masks? Why do well, we have there's to that so, too. I want to know shot, the answer to that one. Over? Yes, I want to know the answer to that too. That's not, not so much a yet. myth. That's like a, no, I, I would like to start licking people I see and telephone poles <laughs> and whatever else. Why can't I? Uh, well, uh, the 
pandemic is still here. In the US, late March, we're still having more than 50,000 new cases a day. That's a lot of disease. And lots of people aren't vaccinated yet. And the more there is uncontrolled spread of COVID, the greater the risk of variants that could overwhelm the vaccine protection. So I think the, the, the myth I hear most is vaccines here, pandemic's over. And you missed a few steps there. Uh, pandemic is not over. Vaccine is not everywhere. And the virus is likely to be with us for some time. And to be clear, the variants, the variants happen because people with ever so slightly different types of COVID that have slightly different, uh, you know, <laughs> parts to them, when they mix together, they create a new variant. That's a very simple way of how variants would exist. That's why you don't want people mixing too much right now to create those variants. Mm, maybe. Nope. Nope. Um, Sarah did bad science. Let's, let's talk to the real doctor and have him explain why mixing without masks could create variants. Uh, there are a couple of theories here. First off, quite simply, the more people who have COVID, the more trillions of COVID uh, uh, or the virus that causes COVID um, virions there are. And for every virion that replicates, there's a chance it will make a mistake. That will be a mutation. That mutation will actually help it spread more. So the more uncontrolled spread there is among people, the more likelihood that the virus, as it replicates, will uh, become uh, more dangerous. But there's a different theory also, which is that certain people who have immune problems, not HIV actually, but people with inborn errors of the immune system, uh, aren't able to clear the virus. And the virus stays within their body for months and months and months, and it evolves to learn to live more with the body. And then those individuals can spread it. There, there's, a, there's a footnote analogy here with polio. We're trying to eradicate polio from the world. We're, we're very close. Only really Pakistan and Afghanistan have never eliminated the virus. But there are some people, again, those with inborn uh, immune problems who are harboring the actual polio virus. And um, even if polio is eradicated from the world, those survivors of polio uh, may need to be treated with an antiviral to try to clear the polio so there's no risk that it will come back. But you asked a question earlier, why can't the mRNA vaccine be used for the common cold? Well, actually, maybe it can be. Uh, we don't yet know that. But one of the things about COVID is that our natural immunity, if we get infection with the virus, is really strong. And that's one of the reasons the vaccine can be so effective. But we're really excited to see, this is the first mRNA vaccine. Maybe there will be vaccines for other diseases, for flu, for example, or other diseases that, uh, that cause se severe illness. Of course, you wouldn't necessarily vaccinate for any disease, but there are some respiratory viruses that are really good potentials for, uh, for vaccine control. Of course, these vaccines came about because of the most intensive scientific collaboration on any issue globally ever, and this biggest investment of money ever. So takes a little bit more than just uh, an idea. All right. Well, I'm for putting money towards the common cold. I find it quite annoying. 
<laughs> I, I think that maybe the single fact that made my jaw hit the floor most out of all of the, the stuff about this pandemic all, all year long was how quickly um, Pfizer and Moderna were actually able to devise these these uh, these mRNA vaccines that um, uh, that are now the basis of our <laughs> hopefully our ticket out of here. Um, and, and, and that, you know, it was just a matter of days between when, when we had the genome of the virus and, uh, and when they had the, the drug and then the months and months after that, we're just testing. And so I did want to ask, um, when it comes to some of these variants, some of which we're worried may develop in the future, but some of which are already here, um, what's the prognosis on keeping up with the variants in terms of, in terms of these vaccines? Is, is, is it possible to have some sort of more expedited testing process for variations of a vaccine, or are we likely to remain, you know, sort of that far behind any given uh, variant booster? Well, first off, uh, variants are the wild card. They are a huge potential threat. We don't know how serious that threat will be, but there is the possibility that variants will evolve, which can evade some or even all of the current vaccines. And one of the real appeals of the mRNA technology is that you could tweak the formula pretty easily and come up with a new vaccine targeted against uh, a variant that escaped protection from the original vaccine. And what the FDA has already said is, we're not going to require massive trials to use that. If you can prove it works and creates the kind of antibody response that would stop that variant, then you'll be able to get it approved. And that's actually how the flu vaccine works. We, we don't do trials of each year's flu strain to see if the vaccines work. We, if, if it was possible to do that simply, that might be a good thing to do, but it's not possible. So we use it and then we analyze, is it working? You know, everyone's heard about phase one, phase two, phase three trials now, but there's also a phase four. And phase four is when the vaccine is actually in use, we analyze how well is it working? Where is it failing? How long does it last? And some of those things will just take time to find out. As a side note, there have been some stories that in fact, this year's flu vaccine may be far less effective. And I mean, the fall 2021 flu vaccine, because it will be so much more difficult for uh, virologists to guess which strains of the flu are going to be most prevalent. Can you give us any reassurance that our flu vaccine will be effective as well this year? Well, what I can tell you is that masks crush the flu curve. <laughs> uh, what's really interesting is that uh, uh, the world has crushed the curve on flu. And that's a combination of masking, distancing, and less travel around the world. So I think what happens in 2021 with the flu season is anybody's guess. Um, uh, there's an old saying among epidemiologists about influenza that the only thing predictable about influenza is that it's unpredictable. Well, that's a bummer. I, I will say that the flu is not fun and the flu is no joke. But if we get to the end of 2021 and the worst thing that I'm worried about is getting knocked out by the flu, I'll, I'll feel pretty good about that, relatively well, speaking. I, I got I to differ with you there. Uh, I, I like to say that the flu is the Rodney Dangerfield of diseases, although I'm told that that's an antiquated reference. Um, it don't get no respect. And, and actually, um, flu is a bad disease. Uh, it kills tens of thousands of people a year. It sends hundreds of thousands of people a year to the hospital. 
And even in a young, healthy person, it can be really bad. I remember a, a staff member of mine uh, when I was CDC director who, who runs marathons, very fit person uh, who had never called me after hours before, called me very upset at one evening, said she thought she was going to die and she had flu. Uh, she, it's just, it really can be very severe. I, I, I apologize for, for belittling influenza. I, uh, <laughs> but, but you, I mean, you understand where I'm coming from, right? <laughs> coming out of this year. <laughs> so I, I hate asking people for predictions, though normally I'm asking political operatives for their predictions. I feel a little better asking you for a prediction, I will admit. Uh, what does this summer look like when we can largely be outdoors while the vaccines are still being distributed? And then what does Thanksgiving and Christmas look like? Well, I think the big wild card is the variants. But if we don't end up with a variant that escapes vaccine protection and there aren't any production problems with the vaccines that we're developing, I think we're going to be in better and better shape. By really the next week or so, I expect to see substantial decreases in death rates in the U.S., uh, by June, I expect to see substantial reductions in case rates. Over the summer, I think we're getting going to be getting toward the new normal. And by the fall, I think we'll be in the new normal in this country. Uh, so I think that Thanksgiving and Christmas are going to be uh, uh, pretty uh, normal. We may see some masking. We may want to keep windows open. We may be worried about variants and clusters of more dangerous um, types of this virus, but the big unaddressed issue is the global issue. There are billions of people who don't have access to vaccine, and that's not just an ethical problem. That's an epidemiological problem. There will be people getting sick and dying from a vaccine-preventable disease, and there will be uncontrolled spread of the virus with the continuing risk that it will figure out ways to escape immunity and come back and attack us again, like as flu does each year with a slightly different virus. So the biggest risk we face is the risk that we won't have, we won't act on the essential reality that we are all connected. And if we don't stop this pandemic globally, we will not be safe. CDC, uh, former CDC director Robert Redfield told CNN on Friday that he personally believes that the coronavirus escaped from the Wuhan Institute of Virology and that it was spreading as early as September 2019. He was quick to clarify that this was his opinion and that he did not think it was intentional, that he thought this was, you know, probably accidental. Uh, how often do viruses accidentally escape virology labs? And do you share Dr. Redfield's opinion? I don't know what he bases that opinion on. I don't think there's any evidence that suggests that it is the case. Uh, we do know, forget about COVID for a minute, we do know that laboratory errors occur, and they've occurred before. For example, the last human case of smallpox was the result of a laboratory error in the United Kingdom that resulted in the death of a laboratory photographer uh, in England. In 2004, the SARS virus escaped from a laboratory in Beijing and resulted in the death of an individual. And 
In the late 1970s, it is believed, although not proven, that an accidental release of an influenza strain from the former Soviet Union resulted in a global pandemic of influenza. So whether or not the virology laboratory in Wuhan had anything to do with the pandemic, it is essential that the world strengthens our ability to make biological laboratories safer all around the world. And right now, essentially nothing is being done on that. In the United States, we have a division of select agents and toxins, which is part of CDC, which has steadily made laboratories safer. But I believe, my personal belief, is that we have to have fewer labs working with these dangerous pathogens and with technologies that could create dangerous pathogens, that we have to have fewer research investigations that are being done, that each such investigation has to clearly outline why the potential benefits are greater than the potential risks, and that we have to reduce the number of people who have access to these facilities because each person who has access is a potential point of failure in this. Now, when it comes to the Wuhan experience, I think fundamentally we have to look at the data. We have to investigate all of the possibilities and identify what happened. Uh, I think what's very unlikely is that this pathogen was created in a laboratory and it intentionally or unintentionally released. The phylogenetic information that I've seen strongly suggests that it is the natural evolution of a pathogen, and that is how other pathogens have spread to humans. Could there have been some association with that laboratory and someone bringing a sample there or something released from there? That's something that has to be investigated. There's no evidence that that's the case. There are people who are concerned about it, so it should be investigated. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of um, sort of thorny political questions that are tied up with uh, with that question specifically. The question of whether it's uh, been it was uh, originated from the lab has become kind of a football between the U.S. and China. You were talking a minute ago about how, uh, particularly as we um, get up to speed vaccin vaccination here, we need to be thinking about this more and more as a, as a global uh, epide epidemiological problem. Um, is there a danger as these sorts of questions like about the origin of the virus become politicized, become uh, ha have these political questions sort of woven into them? Does that inhibit our ability to work with other countries to address, you know, specifically the problem of getting all these billions of people who aren't in our country vaccinated? I hope that health can be a bridge for peace and understanding. That was the case when the U.S. and the former Soviet Union collaborated to lead the global eradication of smallpox. That has been the case in the efforts to vaccinate children. Wars have been put on pause so that children can get vaccinated. So health can be a bridge for peace and understanding. Health is not a zero-sum game. The healthier people are in any part of the world, the better off all of us are. And I, I, I believe that our future, if we have that kind of solidarity and understanding, we'll have a safer and a healthier future. We so appreciate your time today. Very last question. As all of us have been home now for a year, we have learned to entertain ourselves in our own home what has been your COVID hobby or new skill that you've unlocked? Well, it's an old one. 
I happened to have a bicycle that I used to ride around the country. I've had that bicycle for decades and I got it back into working order and that's how I travel around the city now. So that's been delightful. That is a great COVID hobby. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for, well, being the most persuasive voice on COVID, according to actual data that we have now. Uh, We hope to see you out there a lot more, but we know how much our listeners appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks very much. 